Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I am your host, Lydia Bangura. On this podcast, I talk all about music. I talk about my own experiences as an opera singer and a music researcher. I'm currently a PhD student in music theory at the University of Michigan. I also have guests on the show to talk about what they do in music. Currently, we're in the middle of publishing a bunch of episodes for Black History Month, so obviously we're talking all about Black music and featuring some Black guests. To finish off Black History Month, we're going to get into a little bit of personal history, okay? With my sister, Isma Tu Gwendolyn. Isma Tu is an activist, a poet, a writer, a musician. They currently have over 200,000 followers on TikTok, so they're a rising sensation. You can follow them there or on Instagram. They are currently making political education TikToks that are really, really fascinating and relevant. In this episode, we talk about our shared musical upbringing as sisters. We talk about their experiences in music, their experience directing a gospel choir at Northwestern University, and how they see music intersecting with their current activism. And of course, since it's Black History Month, we've got to talk about the one, the only, Beyonce Knowles Carter. So this is actually just part one of our conversation where we get more into the background of our personal history. Part two will be coming shortly where we dive into Beyonce's album, Renaissance. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. I could not be more excited. It is the episode you've all been waiting for, asking for, searching for, praying for, and literally been talking about it for months, and it's finally happening. So we are here to talk about Beyonce today. There's so much to talk about, and to do that, I have a very special guest. It's my own sister, Ismatu Gwendolyn. Ismatu, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being a guest today. <laughs> I am so excited. We're trying something new uh, because um, our voices sound the same. So <laughs> I did something funny, which is that that's always how you answer the phone. So when I call you and I'm like, hey, Lydia, how are you? Like, hi, I'm good. How are you? Exactly like that. Exactly every time. Is that so, that's how we do it on the phone? Yeah. So when your audience listens, they're going to be like, this is just Lydia talking to herself like there's nobody else here yes <laughs> <laughs> yes so listeners you know uh get yourself a little visual companion in your life if you would like uh we're currently recording this on zoom and recording the visual as well so that you can watch us and we're gonna do our makeup so uh mm-hmm. you know we start with skincare let me get my my shade one and then uh <laughs> we're gonna get into it as we talk you know, I always start by asking my guest about their musical background. And you said before we turned on the recording, like, oh, I didn't know that you were going to ask me. Of course, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> so um, let's talk about uh, your musical background, our shared musical experiences when we were growing up. So, you know, what you were listening to as a kid, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> actually, I think this is very funny because I've been listening to, right now, I'm listening back through my Spotify library history, which you know this, Lydia, but for your listeners, I have um, 
a somewhat embarrassing amount of songs because I like to like archive what I'm listening to per genre of life. And you and I grew up really listening to every genre in the book. We had like distinct phases where we were into classic rock, indie pop, gospel, Mm -hmm. country, like whatever it was. So our parents listened heavily to like classic Afro pop. I would say mm-hmm. um, Afro beats is a newer thing and people tend to use that as a catch all turn, but there's a whole lot of music across the continent of Africa and our parents are from the West side. So uh, we grew up listening to like classic pop hits circulating in, you know, 1990s and 2000s. We also grew up listening to a whole lot of reggae. Um, I'm sure there's certain that you and I know every single Bob Marley song by heart. <laughs> I'm certain. Because even like even today when I put it on, I'm like, I couldn't tell you the name of the song, but I can sing it up and down. Mm. Um, we were also really heavily influenced by um, our family that's quite musical. Our father was in a band when he was uh, about our age and they actually were a huge hit in Sierra Leone. So they were a Christian pop band. <laughs> so we listened to a lot. We grew up uh listening to a lot of music put out by the church, both like uh, African, West African churches and West African gospel and uh, the American church, like the hill songs, the Bethels, the shout to the Lord, you know. Um, <laughs> There's some gospel for <laughs> like sure, yeah. The classic and, and some gospel from, um, from our like aunts and uncles. As I began to have more musical autonomy, I began to listen to more secular music, um, which was... Start, definitely started in like the uh, acoustic guitar, white man with a guitar kind of stuff. I was a really early listener of Megan Trainer actually. And Megan Trainer was one of my sure. favorite artists when I was in like sixth and seventh grade. You and did that was have a huge different. obsession. Yes, but that was way, way, that was like years before that she had her, her first hit, All About That Bass, which I actually didn't like that much. Sure. <laughs> I was like, oh. I actually, I, I think I came to kind of heartbroken, like, oh, Megan Trainor is coming up with new music and it sounds a lot more pop. Because before that, she was really doo-wop. She, she uh, was doo-wop with like a ukulele. This is when she was still in music college. She was just putting out music and putting it on her Facebook page. So I was listening to a lot of independent artists really early. Um, got into the, like, the indie alt scene. Um, and then pop punk had a chokehold on me for the next chapter of my life. Um, Fall Out Boy coming off hiatus was one of, like, it's ah. a moment that, you I mean that's a moment that we share in our personal history I was sitting in freshman year geometry and I was not supposed to have my phone out but I had my phone out and you texted me it was 7 42 a.m and you texted me on all caps fallout boy is off hiatus and I yelled (laughs) Uh, I reacted so strongly in my body that I need the bottom of my desk and made a really loud sound while yelping Uh, we were <laughs> huge fans of that whole scene. We started going to concerts. So live music has affected uh, my listening as well. Being in choir, like being in places where live music was happening. And then obviously that is most definitely affected by growing up in the church. So that too. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I got to, I didn't really start listening to like classic Black American music um especially hip-hop r&b and jazz until i went to college Mm. um so that was a huge music revolution for me there because i was listening to everywhere like i had every other um i had had like a foray a little a little toe dip if you will so right now i'm listening back through my spotify history it's a lot (laughs) and um 
a, a past partner made me one of the most perfect playlists I've ever like had. <laughs> and my two favorite song, my two first favorite songs are on there. Uh, Lucky by Britney Spears and uh, Big Papa by Biggie. Yes. So Lucky by Britney Spears, one of my favorite songs in general. Just Arguably love one of the. It's such a perfect pop song. I don't know why it doesn't get its due. We used to have pop songs that took you on a journey. Oh, yeah. Lucky could be a, a YA novel. Lucky is the song version of The Princess Diaries by Meg Cabot. I love it those makes books. sense why I like that song so much. And I mentioned that to say, I mean, I don't know if I can say this on record and about how PG your uh, podcast is. Okay. But Lucky and Big Papa are quite <laughs> prophetic of my life, actually, like the two in tandem. <laughs> okay. Can we, can we dive into that? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Lucky, oh, that foundation looks so good on you. This wow. is a lot better. Okay, this is oh also my gosh, a Nick's so foundation. Um, that's stunning. Yeah, I need to get my base on. <laughs> okay, continue. So Lucky and Big Papa. I mean, you don't see it, so... I, uh, I'm just going to about... need you to spell it out for the listeners. <clears throat> <laughs> Lucky is about um, a a young rising star who is like really st- it's it's about sort of like the transition from star to superstar and everyone's like oh my goodness you're so lucky to be up there you're a star so then why are you so sad all the time mm. um it is a pop ballad about the i like it's one of my favorite heartbreak pop ballads it's about the heartbreak of fame and realizing that um, being up here and living what you thought are your wildest dreams are actually it, it's lonely and it's isolating and it's difficult mm-hmm. and no one understands why it might make you so sad because mm-hmm. it never really tells you um, like in the chorus when the chorus is saying why does she cry tears at night Yeah, the singer of the song never turns to the chorus and says this is why you just hear about the life that she's having in private, but mm-hmm. the private never comes to the public. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> experiencing some of that on my side, becoming uh, an influencer mm. somewhat overnight. Yeah. After staunchly staying away from social media, all of our lives, both of us, in fact, have, have now stepped into content creation after uh, intentionally not having any social media. And you actually have stuck to that. Um, because you don't have much private social media or a private social media presence much at all. Um, mm. You keep it really, you you still keep it really straightforward. Whereas yes. I have- Listeners, I'm sorry, you can't follow me on Instagram. It's private, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it it makes sense because I have done something very different with my, with my social media. And I do feel, it's a cacophony of things, but I feel much closer to the song Lucky than I once did. Mm. <laughs> um, and then Big Papa is about, dating strippers which yeah (laughs) okay because biggie is exactly the kind of man that i would let me take on a date (laughs) okay let we're gonna come back to that um (laughs) thank you for sharing all that and and sharing about your and our musical experiences um and yeah we had many many musical phases all of which uh hold a special place in my heart so yeah your your spotify is immaculate in that it it really chronicles uh uh (laughs) the different things that we were thinking about the different things we cared about um as we were growing up um Mm -hmm. so yes i i also want to talk a, a lot about um you know a shared experience of us growing up as well 
is that we were raised Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, And we went to a series of non-denominational churches uh, while we were growing up. And uh, we always played a really big part in uh, service in the church. Um, And so that had a huge impact on our upbringing, on the ways that we developed as um, artists and performers and leaders and entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. I thought we could talk about that a little bit. Oh my gosh. I mean, where do you even want to start? Oh, literally. <laughs> this is a whole separate podcast in and it of itself. <laughs> it it really is. Um, mutually, you know, something maybe we should do someday is give each other life history interviews because it, it kind of it's difficult to keep track of just how many things have happened over the course of us becoming musicians, scholars, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the church was most definitely a huge part of that. Like you said, I mean, do you remember your first church service? I don't, I have no clue. We, we've been attending as babies. We were christened. We were raised by um, religious, some might call them zealots. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> our mother was the first Christian in her entire family. Mm. Uh, so she's the person that led like everyone in our family to Christ. And that was a, yeah, my, our grandmother's a Lutheran reverend. Okay. She's uh, ordained in the Lutheran church. Our, like uh, everybody is now super uh, invested in not just like the religion itself, but particularly the community that came with mm-hmm. being a church. And then our father uh, held revivals, like with our uncle mm-hmm. raising money for Sierra Leone, uh, would literally hold like you know choir concerts um got like that we sang in from from youth mm-hmm. uh and then as we began to have more choice and agency we definitely ran towards the community of uh church and being at church all of our best friends were at church like people that i have you know my longest friend that we're not directly related to we met at church we met in awana <laughs> <laughs> Um, the amount of leadership opportunity that we were given in the church, especially being two young black girls, don't know how I would have like ever navigated a space like that without you because we were the only black people we around. Mean that literally, yeah, there was no. Our elementary school had no black children except for you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have black classmates. We didn't have black teachers. We we were in homogeneously white spaces, so it wasn't mm-hmm. even just that there were no people around but there was like other people of color like we were the only ones typically mm-hmm. or there would be a really small smattering of us mm-hmm. um and we'd all be from like very different walks of life so i mean i would say that our friend group was as diverse as it could be for the suburbs of colorado and the suburbs of arizona mm-hmm. one place that we got really unmitigated opportunity because in part because we were <laughs> different oh, well. um, was the church so mm-hmm. uh because these white children did not have rhythm, we were given a lot of opportunity to like dance and perform and sing. Mm-hmm. Um, and white people really love it when you are a little black girl that sings. Mm. Oh my gosh, they really love that shit. <laughs> and we hope y'all are listening right now, you bums. Yeah. <laughs> Eat it up. We really did what we needed to do to make sure that we had the opportunities that we needed, but. Mm. A diva is a female version of a hustler. Okay? So, <laughs> been hustling, been yeah. hustling from young ages, been mm-hmm. taught by especially our father how to hustle these white people for their money. So exactly. That you can send it back. 
Good. What is that? Psalm 192? Y'all know that song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that song, Psalm uh, 34, this broke man cried and the Lord heard me and gave me some of your money. Mm, period. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> so um, I think watching him and Uncle Daniel like literally lead revivals and mm. have these white people singing African songs, these white people in dashikis, like they, you know, they did what they needed to do to make sure that they could get a bag and send a bag back to Sierra Leone and they would send some bags back. So we were up on stage then when we were at um, West Bowls, we were in like the um, the musical and did they want us to have speaking parts? No, but did they want us to be very pretty ballerinas? Yes. Hello. So like, it, you know, uh, yeah. being able to take uh, classical uh, dance lessons was cool too. Um, and learn to like foxtrot and stuff but that's an aside that's true we did you know uh, i've never I, mentioned that on the podcast again i'm I, you know obviously most of the history i share about me is about our musical history but we were in dance lessons we were doing the thing yeah we were performers we were we were performers we were very actually well-rounded i mean now that i think about it i never really have thought about it like that but we were actually really well-rounded performers and had a lot of access to different kinds of performance mm. so um i grew up in choir really loved singing mm-hmm. um but i'm gonna be honest singing and all things music felt like more of your thing than mine there was a point in time where we felt like peers in that but then um as you became more disciplined in your viola studies and it was clear that i did not have like the the self-discipline necessary to get really good in an instrument while i was young i had the opportunity and i did play the flute and loved playing the flute but you know what i also had undiagnosed adhd so i really could not mm-hmm. keep my on something like that without like tutoring or help or a class and we could not really afford that right so if we had hobbies it was going to be something that you had to be really self-disciplined at and you were really self-disciplined in music in a way that I just was not and was never going to be so as we became older um and we really both like loved all types of performance and I mean Lydia is the one that likes to call me a dancer but you were a cheerleader and you were very good at it um like we, have i shared that on the podcast have i added myself as a former cheerleader never mind yeah, yeah listeners mean, you were very good you were very good you i was kind of good like the precision of the dance i was always better at tumbling um mm, but, that's true i wasn't the yeah. best tumbler i was not the best at flips you definitely have to be a risk taker and i had no sense of danger <laughs> <laughs> cut to you at ward tour at 12 years old crowd surfing was, hold i was a, a smooth 13 um and lydia has still not forgiven me for the heart attacks i gave her when i, I will not to and i won't and you know what god is working i really could not i re- i mentioned this to you recently but i was like i felt so grown i was like what is my sister going on god older sisters are so annoying what is she going on about because everything was fine. But now that I'm adult, I'm just like, that could have been not fine so bad. Yeah, listeners, I want this on the like... record. Um, <laughs> the next time your 13-year-old younger sister goes what? crowd surfing in the middle of a huge festival where there's not enough security, there's no supervision, there are virtually no adults, the oldest people there are 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> like, ridiculous. Uh, I mean, we live. <laughs> And we had a good time. <laughs> How many 13 year olds get to say that they were crowd surfing at a yellow card concert? It was amazing. And the crowd was like flipping me too. It wasn't even just that it was just a nice smooth ride. Yeah, like, it was terrifying. I don't wanna I don't wanna think about it. We've gotta move on. <laughs> As we got older and you know, 
stepped into being able to choose whether we wanted to go to church, we absolutely still did. And we, you uh, became uh, a singer on the worship team. You were playing the viola. You had a dope ass electric viola that was almost shaped like a treble clef. Like you were absolutely incredible. I remember you, one of my uh, most formative memories with you is uh, when you, the first time that you sang at youth group, because you'd been like singing on the big stage, but you didn't really sing in front of our peers. It's like a really different thing. Um, and high schoolers can be like bogus, you know? Like, sure. so I was really proud of you for even agreeing in the first place. And you had played before, everybody knew you were quite musically talented, but no one had heard you sing. Um, so our band lead um, had you <laughs> secular song which again this is like church kids that have been born and raised in the christian church so we don't hear a lot of secular music in terms of church walls and you sang war by katie perry oh was, yeah uh, what a like moment. That, oh my gosh <laughs> i like that that was when i knew like oh my sister can sing like she could read and i knew right we've been singing together our whole lives but you can sing <laughs> um and everyone was like that i didn't know that you could sing like that and i was like well i knew that you could i just didn't didn't, didn't know that you would I went to different kinds of performance in church. You know, they don't, it's not like we were in black church. So it wasn't a lot of praise dancing. Otherwise I probably would have done something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because there was not a lot of praise dancing and it had become more and more evident to me how important poetry was to me. I started uh, spoken word. I started spoken word poetry. And uh, if white people love a black girl that can sing and dance, oh, they like one that does poetry. Wow, Mm -hmm. oh wow. so much opportunity and I did not realize how unusual it was that I was a 14 year old or a 15 year old speaking at um, a church that was not small um, we're talking like several thousand attendees per weekend three services um, so I had been involved with the church for quite some time been serving in youth group I was a Sunday school teacher or a Sunday school assistant teacher by the time I was 12 like um, we were in it but and I, I did face painting at the church like I did a lot of uh, hard tasks but I don't I think it was our youth pastor that said, hey, Eastwantu, you should um, maybe share some of your poetry. And I did, and it was uh, really incredible. So you started singing and playing, and I started speaking. Um, and if we in the Black community say that, you know, good performers come from come from church, we often think of singers, but we don't often think of speakers. Mm-hmm. So now that I am... Um, kind of here on the world stage on TikTok and on Instagram and uh, restarting my YouTube channel this year and stuff like that, you know, really preparing for a full social media launch and takeover. Uh, it can be in some ways surprising to think about how fast this has happened and how compelling people find my speaking. But then when I think about it in terms of our life history, especially the amount of training that and influence that we got in the church, it's not surprising at all. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, And again, something I kind of want to touch on is, um, you know, you bringing up not feeling super musical in comparison to me, which, of course, everybody around us was always doing, comparing us to Mm. each other. And so I can see why you would feel that way. I kind of felt right um, that I had had you know, and this is something that I kind of got from you when we were in our teens, when we were in high school, that I kind of began to develop this passion for writing. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had notebooks, we were constantly writing, um, and you were, mm-hmm. you know, performing your writing and your spoken word at our church and getting that experience that way. I kind of felt like as that developed, like, oh, well, Isma is the writer, it's not me. Like, so I was kind of feeling um, that way as far as how we were being compared and contrasted constantly, that writing was kind of inaccessible to me because you were the one who was the expert on that. And like, I'll just stick to music, I guess. Um, But I'm seeing now, you know, in our adult lives, how the remnants of both have imprinted us both how we both have experience with both and um that's probably going to continue to up and flow throughout our careers um especially as i'm seeing obviously now that i'm in a phd program my main thing is writing now um not that music isn't still my main thing but we're multifaceted we're just like that yeah um i think in part it also had to do with like you know we grew up so close we were in each other's space all the time we lived together we worked together we had similar friend groups the only thing mm-hmm. that really for the listeners we're us. very close in age as well yeah we're only two years apart so i think uh some things just had to be ours so it was easy to just let you shine in music because it, it was nice to have a place where there wasn't really a comparison anymore you know mm. um, so people could compare like our countenances or exit or whatever you know uh, in fact, people did it so much that our first sister tattoo, mine says, not Lydia, <laughs> and you have like the vice versa, because we had to end so many conversations being like, by the way, I I know that you, I'm not actually Lydia, I'll go ahead and pass that on to her though. <laughs> so it's really nice to have spaces that were just kind of like, you're, you, that's you, and yeah. this is me. And it's nice to now have like distance in adulthood to be able to pick back up some of those things that I put down just so that you could have them. That's a really great point um, that obviously comes from us having separate experiences away from each other, mm-hmm. us living in different places. We have our own social networks now. So that has kind of been able to blossom as we've, you know, developed separate identities uh, in adulthood. Um, so one of the ways that that really kind of blossomed during our adulthood and our time in undergrad uh, is you went to Northwestern University for your undergrad. Uh, and while you were there, you were a part of NCE. So let's talk all about that and how you got started there. Um, yeah, I was in a gospel choir, Northwestern's mm-hmm. premier gospel choir, which just used to be called the Black Choir when it was established. But LOL. Uh, well, we have since we have since expanded into more than one Black choir. And we're grateful for that. Um, but yes, Northwestern Community Ensemble is Northwestern's premier gospel group. I was in it for all four years of my undergraduate experience, and I actually ended up being the director for the the final two years. And that on it, it was a overall lovely. I have absolutely no regrets. But at the time that it was happening, it was a pretty tumultuous relationship with music because I realized just how much training I did not have. Um, it was a bit like a drumline. Uh, how Nick Cannon is like a really good musician. Uh, however, he never really learned to read music and he never really learned the theory about that. He just performs. Like he has such a phenomenal ear that nobody really noticed that they weren't really reading music. So when I was in high school, I'll say, I'll, I'll bring it back a little bit. I tra- transferred to the same high school you were at to be able to have a more artistic experience. And you tried mm. to tell me that I should just Which start again, out. let's start right there where the education system in Arizona is so bad 
(laughs) (laughs) You don't have access to, you know, every, obviously all uh, school districts and schools have their limitations, but like, you know, we were, we started off going to Colorado. No, no, no. Actually, we had ample opportunity to invest in the arts when we went to school in Colorado. In Colorado. Because the public education system varies wildly across the United States. You better tell somebody. Mm. So when we were moved to Colorado and we were, we both knew that this would happen. We both tried to tell our parents that were moving us at the time, you don't understand what you are doing to our education. (laughs) And our West African parents who just did not want to listen to, like, I mean, we already don't listen to children on the regular, right? We generally think that children are being dramatic or like whatever, when children are the people that usually see the world for what it is the most. Mm -hmm. Our West African parents who were like, these children don't know what they're talking about, did it and then said, oh, because they didn't know. Like, how could they, it is kind of ridiculous in thought, especially when you're coming from a country like Sierra Leone, which gets to be pretty homogenous because Sierra Leone is the size of a country and Mm -hmm. the United States is the size of an empire. Mm They had no real understanding of just how much education differs from state to state. So in Colorado, we had unmitigated access to um, specials and they were decently funded. Like we, I made so much art. I learned sewing and home. You took sewing classes, right? You took mm-hmm. home ec, you, media courses. And in, in, I also had like computer literacy courses sure. um, that were way better in Colorado than they were in Arizona. Um, we had art. I had access to visual arts. Uh, mm-hmm. We had and like really, really dedicated, phenomenal music teachers. In fact, one of the few male educators that I had as a child, as did you, is Mr. Stevens, who was such a great Shout music out teacher. to Mr. Stevens. Mr. Stevens, where Mr. are Stevens. you? Get on the podcast. I used to be his Facebook friend, and I really should find him again. I regret deleting my Facebook because it has deleted me from all these really important people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need to go find him again. Uh, but yes, Facebook... Er, sorry. Yes, Mr. Stevens, Miss Romano, who um, sure. Mr. Stevens replaced when she retired, uh, mm-hmm. were really, really invested in us as students. And then we also had choir teachers that quite loved us a lot. Um, Mr. Why can't I think of his last name? Jeff. Mr. Hutter. Hutter. That's his name. Loved him. I mean, like, so we had a lot of, oh man, I think every choir teacher, almost every one of them that I had, like had significant investment in me or significant investment in us both if they got to teach us both. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I got to high school, in my last two years of high school, I was helping teach the uh, introductory choir. I was a section leader and we were at the best high school in the district for the performing arts. We transferred, this is where we started talking about the difference because we could have had a great performing arts experience at any one of the middle schools, education school, uh, middle schools, primary schools or high schools in our district when we lived in Colorado. However, in Arizona, we had to transfer outside of our busing system mm-hmm. to be able to go to a high school that exemplified the arts and we had a really great great art program mm-hmm. but we literally had to switch to driving there which yeah proved to which be difficult very challenging for a low-income family that only has access to so much vehicles and vehicle maintenance money mm-hmm. so i actually almost i almost didn't graduate high school successfully those bitches tried to send me to court for truancy and that was crazy. The only reason I did not have to stand in front of the state as a juvenile delinquent was because my principal interceded upon my behalf and said Y'all are going to shut the fuck up. Mm. Who's going to Northwestern on full scholarship. We're mm. just going to let it fly. <laughs> and they're all listening to this podcast right now. And you will be hearing 
from our lawyer. Okay? You noodle goose bitches tried to send me to prison. Ridiculous. I cannot believe it (laughs) for being poor. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. (laughs) Um, In choir, I had a lot of classical training. Um, I was good enough that my uh, choir teacher was recommending me for regionals and I did not read music at all. I was lying. I was faking it pretty much the whole time. The only thing that really forced me to start reading music was orchestra Orchestra. the Mm -hmm. one semester i sent in orchestra and that was the alto clef so i can still read the alto clef actually but Mm. as a choir director you're never working in alto clef (laughs) um i so i still did not know how to read treble clef and i just never really learned i could fake it and i had such a great year in choir that given the like the blueprint of the notes i could just phonate what it was going to be and moved accordingly um mm. i did this in the varsity choir which was like a small jazz ensemble too it, the i didn't realize how i didn't know enough to know how good i was i didn't know enough to know how good your ear has to be to be able to fake it like that in jazz sure yeah so i got to um college i became the director and because of the structure of undergraduate led and run things it can be really planning for secession can be really difficult so I wasn't trained I didn't get to have any training time with the directors that came before me I also uh directed by myself and that is a two-person job Mm. and I did not realize how talented like how much I was running on just like raw undisciplined unlike filtered unfocused talent to be competing Mm. with people that were in the music school because the directors that came before me were in the music school and they had years of like piano training, classical training, and you know, so I didn't play the piano, I didn't play any instruments, and I literally had to teach traditionally, like I had to teach it like a traditional gospel choir, which is you learn by rote. Mm-hmm. You hear it and then you produce it. And it's a lot easier to do that if you can go home and write yourself out the sheet music and then teach by rote. But I had to learn it by rote and teach it by rote. I did not know enough point blank about music to realize how extraordinary that was Mm. and I was making a lot of mistakes because I had double the workload so I didn't really have a choir that made me feel like I was doing extraordinarily (laughs) I had a choir that didn't like I I felt like a I not even I felt like I was an underdog and I was a junior taking Mm. that over with a choir that when I was a junior a choir that was half seniors so they were looking at me like kid what's good you know Mm. it was difficult to say the least and I was very close to just like quitting and not coming back my senior year um however I'm so happy that I did not do that especially because uh then you started working on your master's at Roosevelt which lol (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much you've talked about your master's at Roosevelt I certainly have no oh okay (laughs) I certainly have no kind feelings about them and I have nothing kind to say (laughs) Uh, but at that point in time, we had the opportunity to live together as adults. So you were able to like support me in a uh, gospel choir. And that was really when I started to realize like the thing that I'm doing is um, a, a stretch of my skill. It's a stretch of my voice. And by the time that I was working on my final concert, I felt quite competent. And I had done a whole lot to train the people that were coming after me. So being in NCE, like gospel was a part of my life, but this was the first time that I was really immersed in Black American culture. Because remember, we're we're West African. So while 
school and church were pretty white places. Home and our social network at home was robust. Our parents are popular. They're partiers. We were at functions every weekend, sometimes twice mm. a weekend, sometimes we on Wednesday. We out here trying to function, really. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we were still having, like, we had... And we had so many peers, like we grew up in, in huge groups of like cousins and play cousins and stuff like that. But all of us were West African, all of us. Mm-hmm. So it was lovely to 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 grow up in spaces like that, to get to dance and party and sing and still have that musical influence. But this was the first place that I had ever had unmitigated Black musical influence. Mm. Um, and it shaped, oh, it's definitely shaped me forever. It has also given me an unshakable love of gospel music. Mm. Uh, gospel music, it, it does not matter. <laughs> gospel music is always, always, always in my top five genres and has been since I started this choir, or sorry, started in this choir. Um, it has also given me a profound love for intergenerational spaces because the way that music brings Black people together, yeah. it don't happen that way in like predominantly white spaces. You know, the kids listen to their stuff and everybody just kind of separates and everybody has their personal Walkmans or whatever. Alamo Walkmans, <laughs> but um, <laughs> we, you know, actually while I'm here, something that we didn't discuss earlier was just how much growing up low income affected our musical. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah. Because we did not have money for iTunes. We ain't have money for app products. Really. Mm-hmm. We like, we had um, iPods that like the, the nano touches that you could scroll on like this. And we mm-hmm. had to stick with those for years. Mm-hmm. So we were often really behind musically yes. because you have to have a lot of structure and access to be able to consume music regularly. And that was the case before Spotify really took off, which we, I don't mm-hmm. think I, I didn't get a Spotify until I was in high school and had Spotify money. So until right. I was like a junior in high school. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff, being able to have access to streaming platforms and not being having to pay individually for songs mm-hmm. um, has made music and the consumption of music and how fast you can get new music explode like exponentially, sure. especially now, like you have stuff like TikTok where you can become like a legend overnight mm. um, or you can launch yourself from stardom like Megan Thee Stallion into international superstardom because your song goes viral. Mm-hmm. I mean... Definitely growing up in the musical age that we have grown up in, seeing our parents go from wind, like winding up our parents' cassette tapes to trying to teach our parents how to use electronic music has been wild. Yeah. Um, and one reason that I love gospel is because it stays the same. It transcends all that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Even new gospel music. I mean, outside of the gospel singers that really just want to be R&B singers and you should go ahead and cross over. Um, <laughs> The gospel music that we still bump is like the most popular gospel songs are still songs that came out years ago. Yeah. It's we don't have a lot of like new classic gospel artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Tell me why literally just yesterday, you know, because I have like a vibe for every every time that I water my plants because it takes like a good 90 minutes. And so, you know, yesterday was the gospel vibe. And I was like with Mary Mary, like I'm walking, I'm walking, still listening to Mary Mary. We're still listening to Kirk Franklin. Like we're still right. Like it's the same. It's the same stuff. Oh, it's the same. Marvin Sapp been ruined for me since I performed Uh, with him. But, uh, you know, like. But that's another thing about NCE. NCE is a force. We have uh, guest artists every year and we have big ass names coming. Big like, names. We were so close. We were so close to getting Tosh Cobbs and Lamar, but that lady's so expensive. We <laughs> did not have Tosh Cobbs and Lamar money. <laughs> we ain't had that kind of money. We were college students. But we've, I've sung with Ty Trebet. 
Mm. Um, I've huge. Huge. Oh my gosh. And that my, my first concert actually with NC was Tidrabet. And that was one of the, the, that was one of my most formative spiritual experiences. Also revivals as a whole have been a huge part of our spirit or my, I mean, yeah, our spiritual, our spiritual and our music experiences. It's one of the reasons I'm excited to go see um, Beyonce. I didn't tell you this, but I got Beyonce tickets. You got I'm going on, I'm going on her birthday. Ah! I'm going oh my to birthday God. show. That's going to be amazing. Listeners, I, have... I also have a ticket. So get your tickets. Come see us there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like people are going to say, but don't you like, blah, blah, blah. yeah, I said what I said about Beyonce. I think she's a capitalist. She's a living legend. Oh yeah. Do you I know how, see her. Uh, at what point in time do I have to swallow my pride and be like, hand over the money? Because um, it was a couple hundred dollars, okay? And that's more than I wanted to pay. However, I'm sad about not being able to see Michael Jackson live. I'm sad about not being able to see Janet in her heyday. I'm sad that Whitney Houston died before I could see her. I'm, yep. sa- I'm sad that Aaliyah died before mm. she could step into the superstardom that was coming for her. That's a living, that's a Black music living legend. We don't get a lot of those, point yeah. blank. So I can make all the critiques that I want and I'm going to make all the critiques that I feel like are necessary because that's how art gets better. And I'm absolutely going to pay the money to see. Are you kidding me? Of Are course, you kidding- uh, listeners, <laughs> get your tickets. Especially Come because see- this lady is hinting at retirement. What if this is her last one? Mm. That's crazy. It could be. It could be. Well, yeah. Thank you again for sharing all of that. Um, and I'm so glad that you were able to have valuable experiences at NCE, here's another thing, right, that's so important about Black ensembles, right, is the way that you leave them and the way that you pass it down, pass oh, down the legacy, right? Yes. So as you mentioned, you put in so much work into making sure that that ensemble is able to sustain itself after you leave. And that's a huge part of Black ensembles, you know, passing on that legacy. I I was so close to quitting. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons we have to talk about church we talk about music is because I don't think about music without thinking about God or my perceptions of God at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember being like, God, I want to quit. Like, I don't want to come back here. It was so hard on me this year. Yeah. And it was so hard working for a choir that thought, openly thought I was a hack. And also I will say one of the reasons that I didn't feel like a musician or a real musician is because that's the messaging. You're not a real musician until you read music. You're not a real musician until you play an instrument. You're not a real musician until bling. Yes. So elitism up and down. Yeah, I fully and fundamentally internalized that. Of course. Um, and it was an easy thing to internalize when you have an older sister who is like an exemplary (laughs) classical musician. It didn't even feel like I didn't even think that I was short selling myself short or doing something wrong. I was just like, I'll just focus on other things. Right. So that was definitely the treatment that I got from a lot of um, the choir that I wasn't a real musician because I wasn't in like the Bean and School of Music. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's something that went away until I was training the next people that are coming after me. Um, my current uh, posts, what is, uh, successor, my current successor, mm-hmm. Emmanuel David, he's one of the most talented musicians I've ever met. He's incredible. He is. Um, there's Shout actually out to ED, get on the show. Oh, no, ED is going to be famous one day, and I'm so excited. And we already have a famous NCE alum, actually. OG is uh, taking the world by storm. She just performed at the BET Awards this year. She's opening for Paramore. Wow. And she was my she was my co-director my junior year because she helped me um, with the winter concert. Mm. So it's not... Uh, it's not at all a comp. Like, there have been multiple famous uh, NCE alums. 
-hmm. it's kind of nuts that we actually have as many famous people as we do for a choir that's only existed since 1971. And it's another reason that it's important to keep our intergenerational spaces. There's always space for you to come back and make the current choir better. Um, but I didn't realize how, uh, how much respect I should be putting on my own name until I was training the next people. And uh, my direct successor, Sarah, who is one year my junior, one year? Two years my junior, um, was like deeply respectful of the work that I had put in to just keep this choir together. And then Emmanuel David, ED, was like, I can do this better than you. You don't even play the piano. And I said, oh, go ahead. Let me move out your way. You can go ahead and teach today. Go ahead. Did you say that? Damn. <laughs> oh, he didn't wow. say it, but his his general countenance, especially like young black men in the church, um, mm. have been fed patriarchal bullshit for their entire lives. So sure. he was looking at me position of leadership, like, oh, I can, okay, okay, I guess. I said, oh, you got bet. Oh, I can put my feet up. Cool, because I've been mm. I, I've been working like a dog for the past three years. You can go ahead and take it, my man. Um, and the way that he came into the next rehearsal with his tail between his legs at realizing how difficult it is. It's one thing to understand music and it's one thing to be able to execute it, but it's an entirely different thing to teach. Mm. And the amount of expertise that teaching uh, instills within you from having to yes. explain these concepts to people that have never, I had to teach a gospel choir that didn't know the word crescendo. Um, right. So how do you explain dynamics and music to someone that has never heard the word crescendo before. How do you right. teach how to sing in three parts when I have, like when I said, okay, here's the harmony. And one of my sopranos raised her hand and said, what is a harmony? I, I don't know this word. Right. Yeah. And then this is a choir full of black folks that have come from every kind of way. So we have people in the school of Benin and we have um, Kenyan engineers who mm -hmm. like, grew up in such a way as if they've only been able to study engineering because that's what it takes to be able to transfer to the United States. So I have people that have music and make music their entire lives. And I've got people that are doing this because their friends ask them to, and that they kind of like singing, but they don't really know anything past that. Yeah. How and also, again, a being a musician, being an instrumentalist is different from being a singer. So even mm -hmm. if you have instrumental experience and you can play the piano or whatever, that's not the same as singing. Like it's an entirely yeah. different skill. That's something else that I uh, didn't really think about or didn't think too hard about. Like, I've never really had the voice that I wanted. Um, and I think it's in part because I know that I, if I spent the the time and the money on like vocal lessons, I could have the voice that I wanted. Mm -hmm. But because I don't currently, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, I can carry a tune. Um, like I, I can sing notes correctly. And I also didn't have like the timbre of voice that I wanted because I had a voice that was very clear and sweet like lemonade like I could hit the notes I was a very clear soprano and I was like that is boring that's boring I want to be able to growl I want to be able to do like I want to <laughs> do runs I want to I I if I got myself back into um vocal training which might happen this year I think I could have the voice that I wanted because I've been smoking <laughs> <laughs> now I got a nice good rasp on me <laughs> mm, listeners stay tuned but yeah it was it was a place that made me, I have so much more reverence for artists like Beyonce. I have so much more art reverence for uh, hip hop. I have um, coloring book also came out in college while I was in oh, black sure. Huge. American spaces. Oh my, and I was in Chicago. I was outside Chicago. Yeah. Hearing, I had never loved hip hop. I like hip hop, 
a lot, but I had never really felt like I had space to invest in it because so much of it is so misogynist. And Mm -hmm. there were, and my peers were just like, oh, get over it. But I was like, I can't get over it. That man's calling me bitch. And I don't allow men to call me bitch. This is ridiculous. Like Mm -hmm. I can't get over it. I can listen for a cute five minutes. And then once my ears perk up to what the song is saying, I don't even want to dance anymore. Yeah, totally. So Coloring Book was um, the first time that I had heard um, an album by a man that was interesting that wasn't about treating women like currency absolutely and it was also had heavy 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 gospel influence in fact my senior year one of the songs that we had slated was the how great arrangement of yeah 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 cancer rappers how great arrangement and it was about to be amazing covid really took so much from me (laughs) (laughs) get to have that concert because of covid but um even like the process of arranging it and teaching it had so much more weight for us because I had tried to introduce spiritual or um hymns before and my black choir was like we are not fucking with this white people music <laughs> and yeah. I had to teach I had to learn to arrange hymns in a way that my black choir or find arrangements that my black choir sure. could really Waymaker, into. Yeah. yes exactly so they like I, most of my black friends don't know that that is uh uh from from the white <laughs> counterpart they were like white people sang that song for- yes yeah but once it gets niggified we never like it, it, it's then and only that has really been washed in the blood you know mm-hmm. before you you could tide some stuff out now <laughs> once it crosses over to our side that's it <laughs> that's real i am grateful to be in part made of black america and that wasn't something that had happened to me before college before moving to chicago um, I moved to Chicago proper with you in my senior year and then spent there and then two years for grad school, um, living on the South side, being in clubs. Actually, uh, we've talked a lot about church, but being in the strip club has changed my music, my relationship to music so much. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's so talk much. about this. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, during your time in grad school, you became a sex worker. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would love to hear about how that has changed your relationship to music. Man, I did not I did not know how much stripping would change me. Mm. Um, this is what people said that it's like the, the hardest part was realizing just how much you've been changed by dancing and how you will never be the person that you were again. And I said, that's y'all. That's y'all. Y'all. Yeah. No, no, no. I feel like I'm going to be the exception to the rule. Me young in my very early 20s um, and full of thinking that things were magically going to be different from you no uh I tried so hard not to and people would ask me like oh did you become a stripper because it's like of the church and I was like no I did it for me <laughs> what does that even mean I, what does like, that question mean <laughs> I think I, did the church were, like is this like a rebellion against the church is that what people were asking yes and that's oh. a dumb question because like I had already had my rebellions against the white church. I have formally left the white church. And however I feel now about Christianity is never going to be the cut and dry way I felt about it as a child. Everything felt so clear. Love God, love others. But as you grow up and become, when you grow from being, a, I, I knew that I was a Black person, um, but I felt like an African person in America. Yep. I grew up and became a Black American. Mm -hmm. It was an identity that I had to intentionally seek out and one that I intentionally put on. And I'm not saying that I am the same as people that have been born and bred in this country, 
for mm. um the metaphysical ways and like the quite literal ways of being bred like the the culture here was made with such intention that I don't want to like just step in and implicate myself mm-hmm. I'm saying that um being in spaces and loving people and becoming intimate with people and being in part raised by black Americans has shaped my yeah. personhood in ways that are that would be way more offensive to those people if I tried to say that I wasn't black American mm. <laughs> Yeah, the internet can be as mad as it wants. I understand that people are like, nuance. I promise you the nuance is there in my real life. What I'm not going to do is piss off one of my moms by saying, <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Y'all can go ahead and get your ass beat. Not mine. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> Come on the yeah. show. <laughs> Mom and Miss Lynn, if you're listening, my mother we love is like, you. I love you so much. <laughs> having a Black American stepmom was a huge, like, huge. Part, uh, come on. <laughs> and aunts now, like, aunts, you know, et cetera yes um so all of those people would be uh, you know telling them or going through the process of telling them that I was a dancer they were like what (laughs) (laughs) however um black America has ties to the illicit trade in ways that are not negotiable like part of the reason that we have opulence and a culture of opulence is also because we have a culture of fuck the police and fuck these white men rules sure in the same way that the church of black america shaped me going to the the witness um which was the first black american christian conference um being able to be at the inaugural one was nuts um being in chicago the birthplace of gospel music and moving to bronzeville in part because of that yeah um shaped me shaped my politic shaped my personhood and my personhood is political and then being in the club twerking in sections for drug dealers (laughs) um absolutely shaped my personhood it changed my music taste so much it forced me to have a uh, respect for rappers that I otherwise disregarded because they're misogynist. I don't take those hits back. I absolutely think that you could be excellent without alienating the people that are keeping you safe because yep. y'all don't keep each other safe. Black mm. men are not very good at keeping each other safe. Your yeah. homeboys are ratting you out to get less prison time. Your yeah. homeboys are shooting you in the next week over a girl. Your homeboys don't keep you safe. Yeah, patriarchy doesn't allow for... Mm-hmm. That's what it allows for dominance. It allows for dominance. It don't allow for safety. It allows for dominance. It doesn't allow for real community building. All the communities that y'all build are about money. Mm. And the places that you feel safe are when you turn off plastic on the sofa, uh, plastic off the sofa, and you curl up with your boo. And she says, I love that you can be yourself around me. Mm. I never would have had the whole face that I had if I hadn't (laughs) become a stripper. Um, I would not have the experiences with Black men that I do. Oh, gosh. Um, I wouldn't have the relationship with Beyonce's music that I do if I hadn't made rent money shaking my ass to her music. I wouldn't have the same reverence for Rihanna as I do Mm. if I hadn't had made money to her music um, and listened to, like, I loved the song, Diva. But when I think about when I had the entire club up, like money raining from the ceiling because of a stage set that I was doing to the homecoming version of Diva, when I had the whole club turned because of the way that I performed, I wouldn't have the relationship to the music, uh, to, to Black America's music, to the music of opulence 
that I do if I hadn't had become a dancer and if I hadn't had performed that music and if I hadn't had been forced to listen to rap that I otherwise never would have touched, I realized that one of the reasons it's great is because it encapsulates the essence of money so well. Enter my other favorite autobiographical song, uh, Biggie's Big Papa. There it is. Listeners. <laughs> they really buried the lead there, but there it is. <laughs> so I just want to hear a bit about, because as I mentioned before we turn on the mics, I I don't talk a ton on this podcast about other forms of art. Obviously, this is a music-centered podcast, but music also heavily intersects with the poetry and the art, the visual art um, and other forms of artistic expression that are going on at the time, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm really interested in, you know... Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, and I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, not only as a musician, but also as a poet, as a writer, as a scholar, um, to talk about the music that you're listening to now that helps inspire your art. Like, what kind of artistic and activist movement do you see yourself participating in uh, through your work on TikTok? And I should also mention uh for the listeners that aren't familiar with my sister's work uh they are currently over 200,000 followers on TikTok crazy and uh as they alluded to earlier kind of had this overnight success story which was about a year ago like it's happened so quickly <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we just passed the the year anniversary of my first TikTok video mhm mhm and so you kind of uh blew up on TikTok and uh we're telling kind of like not story time videos, but like... Well, it's just talking about my life. Yeah, yeah. And then it's kind of morphed into... I. What kind of TikToks would you say that you make now? I would say that I focus pretty heavily on political education. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, I'm interested to know kind of how you're seeing your TikToks, your devotion to political education, the work that you're doing through... Uh, Substack and with a private book club. Um, so the way that you're kind of invested in this public pedagogy idea, which is something that we both share, um, yeah. the way that you're sharing your art and your poetry, your lettering, um, and how that intersects with kind of the music that's inspiring you now. Yes. <laughs> it's funny that you say you're lettering. Um, because I was able to work with an artist in Amsterdam to make some prints of lettering that I did. Um, <gasps> Yeah. I mean, you heard it here first. I haven't actually told anybody about that. Um, Listeners, it's exclusive. It's just, it's so fun to realize how multifaceted art is and how multifaceted you can be in art. Yes. Yes. And that all of my art bleeds together. Like I don't have in my, within my own self, clean and concise boxes around musicianship or dance or physical art or painting or poetry or whatnot. Like it all runs together. And I mean, you mentioned the fact that we journal earlier, but one of the visual representations for me of that is journaling, Um, having, you know, my like fundraiser meetings and my scheduling right up against paintings, right up against like uh, reminders that I need to get back in voice lessons or right against my stretch routine, like all of the ways that I'm an artist run together to create what compels me. And where you say like, you need to have a public pedagogy, I say uh, my personal is political in that my personal circumstance, uh, my personal experiences, uh, and my personal identities propel my action. Mm-hmm. 
the point of a politic is to compel you to action. And I always say, and you know, like one of the reasons that I say love is a politic or having love as a politic is because uh, my first spiritual foundations were set on love God and love others. Um, and because the church was the site of ways that I could be a multifaceted artist and just have people like applaud me yeah. in doing so. Yeah. And create not even just like recognition because recognition and, and money is important to be able to make art in capitalism. Mm. But not just in that, but in the opportunity to create community. So in uh, in practicing my art in public and writing in public, because for a long time I was not writing publicly after like speaking and then after completing half of my um, senior year thesis that was uh, a thesis on poetry for uh, for research that I did on Ebola as a as a teeny bopper. <laughs> I took a long break from art, like or from that kind of art, from arts that I felt most familiar with. I wasn't writing any poetry. I wasn't painting. I wasn't. I stopped journaling. Like I wasn't really engaging in that sort of art. So to find myself looking up and realizing that I'm still an artist, to realize that I have. Found, and, and not only that, my art has, you know, exploded out of me, even when I wasn't looking, but that my art led me to becoming more political because sex worker now is a political identity. It's not just something I, you know, I have in my back pocket. I would also argue that barista is a political identity with the amount of different kinds of people that you meet and the amount of community building that you're part of when you're mm -hmm. at like a home shop when you have and a home the work shop. conditions that you're subject to and the yes and the amount that you have to organize for like pay that is dignified because people undervalue your service mm -hmm. uh, it made me realize that work is political that i will never have a casual relationship with money or money making um, in part because of what poverty um, has stolen from me um, and the reparations that I owe myself in my community by organizing for justice. And in part because sex worker is such a stigma, stigmatized uh, occupation. And if I am someone in public, I need to be able to talk about how sex work has changed my personhood such so that I can create ways and create space for more sex workers to be able to talk about what they do because eventually I just stopped lying like eventually like by year like one and a half or so and people ask me what I did oh I'm a stripper um, unless I was like in a situation where I sincerely could not do that like in corporate spaces or in school and stuff like that even though some of my professors did know that that was was up because I kept being late to class I was out until four in the morning you know we have a 9 30 like I'm doing my best yeah all that is to say um it affected, actually, I don't know what that is to say. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> the question is um, kind of the music that inspires your current, uh, like the current trajectory of your career and the ways in which the music that you're listening to and consuming or the musicians that you know in your life who are kind of intersecting oh. with your art, your poetry, your political activism. Jazz and rap. It's most definitely jazz and rap. Um jazz especially african jazz learning about the reasons that jazz became popular in ethiopia was because of like artistic and religious protest yeah um listening to in way more hip-hop um and listening to black men talk about their lives being led there by megan the stallion who raps a lot like men do uh in that she talks about like 
fucking and money and then we'll be like i'm intensely alone <laughs> like in the middle you know yes yes it's like we just that- have anxiety and that's it and it's like like what <laughs> hold on a second you know it- it'll be on the same it'll be in the same verse yeah like she'll be talking about um I don't know that I've ever really had a real friend before. I don't know how to trust people. I like to drink and I like to have sex. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> that music, listening to their music, listening to music that they find, um, listening to music that they find intensely impactful and listening to how much of it about was about money and feeling like that was insincere or like too capitalistic or too patriarchal until I became a bitch that became really about money because economic justice impacts every other kind of justice that there is. You can't have reproductive justice without economic justice. You can't have food sovereignty without economic justice. You can't have none of this shit is working unless the money flows where it needs to flow. In the meantime, you know, like that's not necessarily how we need to live for the next hundred years or hundreds of years, but it is the way that we need to be living right now. So because so long as cash rules everything around us, economic justice is liberatory justice, point blank. When I started listening to I Gotta Get My Money Up music yeah. uh, that that had the, that had that as an explicit feat, like Spilligion by Spillage Village um that was an album that pulled me way deeper into the artistry of spoken word poetry how it intersects with jazz and makes rap as like um in ways I think I just said a new thought and I need more time to think on that thought but that's a very interesting thought yeah Yeah. no really and you know it's making me think of so I'm in a, a class right now uh where we're reading a bunch of black plays it's called staging blackness uh yeah so we're talking about what it means it's like a performance studies class about what is a performance what does it mean to perform on stage but also what does it mean to perform something like race or gender or ethnicity right and um i just read a raisin in the sun for the first time listener listen the listeners know the listeners know it's it's endlessly frustrating the ways in which i have been kept from black literature by oh music academia ah i yeah. will i will curse it forever um but yes i just read raisin in the sun by hansbury so great so and so you good. know something that was so and i listened to her interview i'll put it i'll put a link in the show notes listeners uh i listened to her interview uh you know one of them that's on youtube talking about the play and you know when she named walter as the main character i was like the fuck like <laughs> <laughs> And I have this personal version to like, huh? Because there's so, you know, I find all the women characters so fascinating that it's like, surely it's Ruth. Surely it's the mom. Surely it's right. Like, surely it's uh, Benita. Like, it can't be. But, you know, as I kind of was typing up my notes for class and writing my little paper on it and all that stuff, it was like, you know, the, the character of Walter is so incredibly complex in the way that all the characters are like, why are you so obsessed with money? What is going on? Like, all the women around him are like, you have this obsession with money. I don't understand. It's freaking me out. But, like, he feels so deeply misunderstood. He feels so deep because he understands that his manhood is on the line and that he can only, you know, manifest that, dignify himself and his family through money and it really brings to mind like you know dreams is such a heavy kind of theme throughout the play and um like what all the characters are dreaming about what they are what they see as 
liberation to them right and Mm -hmm. walter in his wildest dreams he's not dreaming of like merely safety and security for his family like maybe just like a house of their own or whatever he is dreaming about wealth like and so it it really um kind of demonstrates the way the way that patriarchy is linked to capitalism and is linked to white supremacy it doesn't even allow for men to dream bigger than capitalism in your wildest well, dreams, hold on, right? Hold on a like, what is wealth and capitalism synonymous? I don't oh, think so. Sure, 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 sure. It's not. And I, this, wait, let me say, this is, I think, the 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 change that the club brought on me, becoming someone who believed that money mattered. Because for me, before now, I was not motivated by money. I didn't care about money. I was like, money comes. Like, I, so long as I have enough, I need to have enough money to create art. I need to have enough money to do what I need to do. So money only mattered as a means to an end. But organizing for this fundraiser and seeing just how much shit you can done get done with the right amount of money in the bank account, money became about justice. Money mm-hmm. became about distributing love. Sure. So when I think about how Walter felt misunderstood, I think it's in part because the women around him are like, money doesn't matter. But who has the burden of creating money in the system that we have? It's not us. It's not women. It's not women. So you can say all you want. Why are you so obsessed with money? Why are you so obsessed with money? It's not just about manhood. It's about freedom. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in his wildest dreams, there's like this whole monologue that he has where he talks about being a boss, right? He talks about hierarchy still. So that's the part to me where it's like, you know, we can dream bigger than than we can dream bigger than that. Yeah, than true. hierarchies, like we can dream bigger than becoming the oppressors. But I think you're so right in that, like dreaming towards freedom and money as a vehicle to freedom, and um, and that being, like you're saying, like can we think bigger and more about economic justice in relation to other types of justices that we're Mm -hmm. thinking about, right. That we're Mm -hmm. preaching about Um, because they're all in the way that, you know, systems of oppression are linked. All systems of justice are linked. So exactly. Yeah. And they're hinging upon economic justice, gender justice and racial justice. Like those are the three big ones. And I would also actually argue that, a fourth justice would be like land justice. Sure. Um, I'll say also, well, first of all, the themes that we're leaving on, um, I think tie into Beyonce really well because she always describes herself as the realest nigga in the room, as in she has the same mindset about money is important for freedom mm. um, and not even important central to her versions of freedom, central to her versions of justice and central to her versions of feminism, which is that feminism is exalted when women get paid. But like, I now have questions because you don't pay all the women on your team. The same as you make. Um, I think that in running this fundraiser and thinking about um, what is like my wildest dreams, I too dream of wealth. I too dream of abundance. I want wealth for Sierra Leone. I want wealth Mm -hmm. for all of us. I don't want to be having to rely on the goodness of the spoils of the beneficiaries of the core empire of the West. I want to see an Africa that owns its resources and people who own the resources that they are bound to by thousands of years. I want to see us return to ancestral homes. I want to see people across the diaspora looking at migrating back to Africa as a 
um, a feasible and sustainable dream rather than as like a last choice or a last resort. Yeah. I too dream of wealth. I am just not very interested in individual wealth. I dream of our communities, the communities that have raised and blessed me being owning the wealth that we already have because we have that wealth it's just being stewarded and misused and abused by other people yeah so in the fundraiser um i'm fundraising not just to to feed people one time but to create the systems and the infrastructure to be able to feed people for quite some time so it's filled me with um hope in that I didn't know that other people would care like I care especially because I care because this is my literal family like I'm I care because when I go see this tractor I'm going to sing with our grandmother like this is my family I other people care because of justice and the the fact that this amount of people can care because of justice it is so much further than I thought that we were yeah. Especially because the first time that I went viral for saying that um, poor people should have kids and not feel guilty about that. Yeah. Um, the backlash that I received was exorbitant. And I was saddened so deeply because I can't even be mad at individuals. This is the fault of state propaganda. Yeah. I was thinking I did not realize so much of us had didn't didn't like put this down sometime in like teenagehood or adolescence because I, too, was a 15-year-old pissed at my parents for having me because I felt like they were irresponsible or dumb or selfish and bringing me here and subjecting me to poverty until I grew up and realized that the poverty wasn't their fault. Mm. That's not on them, Yeah, quite frankly. And I can be as mad as I want about existing, but so long as I'm here, I can make things better or I could sit here and be mad at people that can't control what happens to them yeah. and didn't ask for this. Do you think those people wanted to raise me in poverty? Of course not. So I didn't realize how much of us were still pissed at our parents. But then I also didn't realize how much of us were compelled to hope anyways. So um, I've been saying a lot lately that hope is contagious and that this fundraiser has spurred my activism in a way where I am never going to shut up. Like I'm never going back. Uh, mm-hmm. My commitment to political education and not just political education, but political action. Cause it's one thing to know, but it's another thing to be able to do shit. Yeah. So my commitment to being to doing shit for the rest of my life and doing shit publicly, doing shit as an example, doing shit with resources, yeah, um, and doing shit that is meant to be sustainable rather than organizing that is supposed to burn you out, and also financial transparency because one of the reasons we don't be opening our pockets as freely as we were anymore is because of the mismanagement of funds in 2020. Point blank. Yeah. So many people were like, "I hope you're not scamming me." Here's a dollar, and I was like, "This is, it, it, it." <sighs> is astonishing to me that you have so much hope in me that you're still willing to give me money. Yeah. And it breaks my heart how much we have had our heartbrokens in the past by giving somebody money just to see them come up individually. Yeah. And then all of the work that that money could like, sure, you know, $115,000 would personally change my life for like, you know, a, a decent amount of time. $115,000 is going to fundamentally change our lives in Sierra Leone. For an entire tribe, for one of the four major tribes of this country. And that's going to do it for part one of our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Ismati for being on the show. What a key it was. Again, stay tuned for part two, where we dive all the way into Beyonce's album Renaissance. Plus, you'll get to hear some other special voices included in that conversation. 
Make sure you follow my sister on TikTok and Instagram at ismatu Gwendolyn. That's I S M A T U dot Gwendolyn on Instagram and TikTok. All the links are in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me with any questions, comments, feedback about the show, if you want to be a guest on the show yourself, if you want to suggest a topic, anything like that, send me an email, hermusicacademia at gmail.com, or go to my website and fill out the contact form there, hermusicacademia.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.